Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Lucas, it's good to be in your presence yet again. This week, we are coming live with a, uh, a brand new episode, brand new topic. Uh, to give the listeners a little bit of background, we've recently had a number of, of conversations where um, this idea has come up. We Several months ago, we had an episode on the idea of speaking in tongues. We talked about glossolalia. Um, even more recently, we talked about um, Pentecostalism as it pertained to um, uh, within our Heresy Month. Like we, we, I, I forget exactly how it came up, but we had a, I think we had an episode on. Um, why am I completely blanking? <laughs> we had that episode. I think it was on, in the Bethel episode. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think we were talking about Bethel. We talked about them being a Pentecostal denomination. You're right. Yeah, I t- don't know why that was totally slipping my mind in this moment. Um, but yeah, we so we've had several conversations lately, and I remember back when we did the speaking in tongues episode, we specifically were like, hey, we should do an episode on the Azusa Street Revival, and we had said, all right, yeah, we'll do it like in a week or two, and obviously either we forgot or it just kind of like pushed back farther and farther. Um, but here it is. This is this is more or less going to be a conversation on the Azusa Street Revival specifically but also more generally speaking it's going to be a conversation about pentecostalism more broadly um so with some of that out of the way why don't we just jump right in lucas where where do you want to start this conversation um what's a good a good starting place so i think kind of touching on a little bit of historically speaking where pentecostalism comes from so For those unfamiliar, Pentecostalism refers to a specific tradition within um, Christianity that carries with it certain distinctive beliefs and and practices. Most, you know, sort of famously, I guess, I I think most Christians who aren't Pentecostal would would associate Pentecostalism with um, charismaticism, perhaps for people of our generation, like post 1960s 70s 80s the charismatic revival movement in which is a you know across all denominations and traditions but um if you've heard of or are a part of denominations like the assemblies of god um and i'm speaking in an america from an american context like there might be other denominations i'm just not familiar with um but the assemblies of god uh the church of god um church of god in christ um and many more that I'm, I just I'm not familiar with, um, but it is it is basically it is a distinct movement, a distinct. Um, I, I I like the 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 the, the idea and the, and the to it helps me. I think I, I don't like just saying denominations because that doesn't really. I don't know. I don't I don't find that as precise. But to say it is a distinct, identifiable tradition within. Christianity that um, not necessarily right away, but certainly today does have, you know, is associated with specific denominations that are Pentecost, you know, or were denominations that were organized and formed and started by Pentecostal Christians as 
Pentecostal denominations, groups of Pentecostal churches. So um, I think while it is obviously way, 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 way longer and more um, nuanced and more complex than any single podcast episode, let alone one specifically designed to be sort of just a flyover sort of intro 101 levels uh, kind of exploration of Pentecostalism um, as it is today, starting at the beginning with some of the important um, some of the important historical moments, even prior to Azusa Street. And then Azusa Street sort of both historically as well as kind of, I think, symbolically, um, is definitely sort of the, it, it, you know, if you had to pick one thing as sort of the catalyst and the kickoff for the Pentecostal movement, I think I think many people would, would want to point to Azusa Street, so we'll camp there a little more. But before we get there, some like basic early history stuff. So like, We've talked a little bit at, at different times, um, depending on, on certain topics we've done or, or episodes that we focused on certain people. We've talked a little bit about like the re- restorationist churches and, and the restorationist movement in, in like the 1800s, especially mid to late 19th century. Think of like um, William Miller. I think we did a Christian of history on him, maybe. Um, I don't know. But the and, and Seventh-day Adventism or in Adventism more broadly, eventually, you know, kind of consolidating into Seventh-day Adventism, um, like Disciples of Christ, Churches of Christ, um, uh, the the Holiness Movement, Wesleyan Holiness Movements, if you're familiar with those as well. This, this, is, this is, you know, Second Great Awakening, very much in the religious water here in, in the U.S., um, not exclusively, but the, a lot of these, these movements that I'm referencing are North American movements, you know, United States-based movements within Christianity. Um, and just sort of as to, like, kind of tie into some of the stuff we've talked about over the years, like, this is, this is also, uh, if, if you'll recall from not too long ago, similar time frame to where we see big shifts and movements and new movements developing, like Jehovah's Witnesses, or if you remember from a little bit longer ago, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And like, um, there's there's a lot of revivalistic, you know, Stone Campbell movement and tent, tent revival meetings, um, a lot of that kind of revivalism um, really sweeping across the American religious culture around this time. And it's out of some of these movements. This is the, Those are not Pentecostal movements, right? Those are not sort of the birth of Pentecostalism so much as the seeds or the soil from which Pentecostalism Pentecostalism would grow. And and the first major, like there's, again, way oversimplifying, the first kind of major figure and event um, is, is Charles Fox Parham, who was, he, he came out of the holiness movement. He was a faith healer, itinerant preacher, evangelist. He traveled around a lot. Um, and in 1901, one of his parishioners uh, began to speak in tongues. And we're not saying this is the first time anybody ever spoke in tongues or necessarily even the first time that somebody in one of these movements or somebody associated with Charles Fox Parham spoke in tongues. But 
it was this it, it was on New Year's Day 1901 and it and this particular event of this this woman I forget her name with uh speaking in tongues at, at a service um this spurred Charles Parham on to what what was unique about this is that he really ascribed meaning to this. It, this wasn't just a moment of spiritual ecstasy. This wasn't just a moment of a particularly strong encounter with the Holy Spirit or something like that. But he ascribed this this broader significance to it. And he he put together, he, he almost in a way was sort of the first one to sort of systematize this idea of the... This, this idea of, of a, you know, sort of formally, if you think of it like capital letters, the of baptism in the Holy Spirit, where this is something that this woman experienced that is not the same thing as Christian baptism, as it's normally thought of, traditionally thought of in water. It's an, and it's not the same thing coming out of the holiness context, even of this, this experience of total sanctification, which is a whole different thing that we're not, doesn't really place much bearing here for us and um but but it's this it's this second or or because of the holiness context with this with this total sanctification piece a third blessing um as it's sometimes called where the holy spirit baptized you're, you're baptized in the holy spirit and the the specific evidence of that the the you know visible or, or i guess technically audible evidence of that is this moment of speaking in tongues which is different. I, I, I in preparing for this episode, I don't know how much this language is still used. It probably depends on on where you're at. Um, but there, there's this difference between the sign of tongues and the gift of tongues, which the difference being um, depending. And again, this is I think just different depending on your specific brand of Pentecostalism that you're looking at. Um, there's there's an expectation that you know the sign of tongues is when you speak in tongues as a result of being baptized in the spirit. And that's something that, that is normative, that that's, that is what the experience of every Christian is, um, who experiences the baptism of the Holy spirit versus the gift, which is, which is more that ongoing, you know, kind of more what I think we might think about if we're thinking about the new Testament, um, particularly when Paul talks about it in like Corinthians and stuff. Um, as, as a specific gift where you're given a word that's interpreted, that kind of thing. Um, and he was, he was really the first to start drawing these threads together into something a little more cohesive as a, a normative um, sort of doctrinal position that would eventually go on to become distinctive in Pentecostalism and really what kind of separates Pentecostalism from other Christian groups. Um, and so he, like I said, he was traveling. He did a lot of ministry work in Texas and sort of the Southeast, as well as up in Chicago and north of Chicago. Um, and, you know, along this time, and we'll get, we'll get more into this a little bit, I think, or, or you will, I should say. Um, I'm not really prepared for it, so hopefully you will. But um, there's, there, there's, there's some cross-pollination going on with, with um, revival experiences and movements in the UK as well. And so while we're talking about in this these early stages, we're talking about, you know, the, these figures are coming out of American churches in this in this time of American revivalism. But today, Pentecostalism, the the the, the broader movement and and 
and tradition that emerges out of these initial um, historical events and, and figures that we're talking about here um, is very much a global faith. It's very much a global movement. Um, there are something like, I, I wish I had the, gra- the the table in front of me that I found, but there, there, there are something like, I think, six million Pentecostals in America or something like that. Sounds a little low, but I don't know. Maybe this was earlier, but um, there are 26 million in Brazil, uh, and there are, there are 500 million worldwide. Um, which, if you're counting, you know, like to, to put it a little bit in perspective, there are 300 million ish Eastern Orthodox people in the world, I believe. Um, I think that's correct. <laughs> and there, there, there's like 1.2 or something, 1.3 billion Catholics, right? So a little, little, you know, close to a third as like a third as many Pentecostals in the world as there are Catholics. And, and that's, that's global. And, and the, the center of gravity of Pentecostalism, along with Christianity in general, um, this is, this is no like secret is, is, is in the non-Western world. Um, and so, that all, all that to say, this that that's an important part of um, Pentecostalism's story and also Pentecost, Pentecostalism's history. Um, this this sort of broad um, impact um, right from the beginning, as we'll see shortly, um, as Jensen brings us to the Azusa Street revival. Um, so so like I said, this Parham stuff is going on in the very end of the of the nineteenth century, very beginning of the twentieth. Nineteen oh one is when. That, that first tongues experience kind of sends him down this path of developing this very distinctive doctrinal position on, on, on baptism in the Holy Spirit and the sign of tongues. And then his ministry continues. Um, uh, but what, where we'll go next is, is a few years later, and we'll go all the way over to L.A. of all places. Right. Man, well, like you said, this, there are more than 500 million Pentecostals and charismatic believers across the globe. And from what I saw, it is the fastest growing form of our Christian faith today in the world. Um, like if you look at like the, the 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 rate at which this movement has grown, it is the fastest growing. Um, and like we've already said, many many will point to specifically this Azusa Street revival as the the beginning, uh, the birthplace, the um, you know the 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 center of something going out into the world i mean there are there are other contexts other things that contributed to it but azusa street was so um important and influential so it man it's crazy because you say 1901 and i'm like and i think i've even mentioned this somewhat recently on air but like my great grandfather was born in 1900 so like these things took place within the lifetime of like just a couple of generations i mean we're not talking about something 2000 years ago this is like recent American and world history. Um, so I guess if we're going to talk specifically about Azusa Street, it's helpful to know just very briefly what was happening even around it. Um, as Lucas alluded to, there was a a, uh, a Welsh, so in the, the country of Wales, there was a, a revival that was really um, important and impactful between 1904 and 1905, uh, sort of led by a guy named Evan Roberts. He was at the time was a 26 year old minister in training. Um, but what he was doing 
in in Wales uh, reached what was going on over here in the seas. So people, or sorry, over here overseas in America. So people like Parham, people like, uh, as we'll talk about here, William Seymour. They they see what's going around going on around them in the world, and they're they're interested in it. Some of them travel to see this firsthand. Um, and what's what's really interesting, and I think somewhat um, even still today characteristic of Pentecostalism is like this this Welsh revival, unlike earlier religious revivals um, that were perhaps based on powerful preaching. Think about like the Great Awakening, for example, the the preaching of people like Jonathan Edwards and um, um, you know his contemporaries. Like this revival in particular relied primarily on music and supernatural phenomena um as we've already said some of these speaking in tongues miraculous healings um the the other things like that um and so what especially when we consider that these are sort of the the seeds or the roots of what we now see today as a greater pentecostal movement it is interesting to sort of trace the history i mean when you when you walk out of your home into the streets of your city or town, wherever you are, and you encounter a Pentecostal church or even a mega church, like you can trace through history the roots back to these moments. These are the the early, um, you know, the the early bits of of what we have today. the The church down the street didn't just like pop up for no reason, out of nowhere, for no purpose. Like it was, it's rooted in a tradition, a tradition that goes back, you know, just several decades. Um, so speaking specifically though, about the Azusa street revival, it was a historic series of revival meetings that took place in LA of all places, like in Los Angeles, California. It was led by William Seymour, who was an African American preacher. He's actually the child, I believe one of eight children to, to former slaves. So again, man, when you think about like American history, the, the stuff this guy was doing, he was the child of, of people who had been enslaved in our country. Um, but he, this revival began in 1906. So again, just shortly after that Welsh revival, um, Seymour and seven men were waiting on God um, on Bonnie Bray Street when, when quote, suddenly as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. And the other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out loud, praising God. Um, end quote. Um, so this news quickly spreads. The city is stirred. So crowds gather. Services are moved sort of outside to accommodate the people because this, this, this initial meeting place was too small. Um, it's, it's reported that people fell down as they approached. They attributed it to God. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, sick people were healed. Um, and so to further accommodate these crowds that are continuing to come to these revival meetings, uh, an old dilapidated two-story building on Azusa Street in the industrial section of the city was procured. Basically, they go and get this building. Um, it had been built for an AME church, so African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, but more recently had been used as like a stable storage building, tenement house. Um, so it's in this little humble mission uh, that a revival occurs and really like becomes known around the world. Um, and as, as we've said, this, this revival is characterized by spiritual experiences, um, testimonies of physical hearing, uh, healing, miracles. These worship services are, are prolonged, um, you know, probably different from what you'd come to expect in a, in a modern church or even a church of that age. Um, 
obviously speaking in tongues is a big part of it. But what's really interesting to me is like how the media would like come into these events. And it's it's even similar today in a way. I mean, I'm sure media goes to like Lakewood Church. Um, media, I'm sure, goes down to that church. What's that dude like down in Tennessee? I'm blanking on his name. Kind of a crazy preacher guy who's... Um, is that Perry Stone? No, that's not who I'm thinking of. Uh, I don't I know. Completely, dude, I got my COVID booster yesterday, and I swear I've been like this fog for like all day. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But like today, even the uh, the media will will go into these places, and I'm sure report too. But what's what's really interesting is the way that they interact with and can even like influence this movement and this revival, because um, because specifically here. Uh, these participants in this revival were criticized by secular media and thus even some like other Christian theologians who belonged to other traditions, whether that be Baptist, Methodist, uh, Presbyterian. Um, but they considered these events to be outrageous, unorthodox, and especially for this time period. Um but, you know, it's it's interesting that in, in less than four months in after like after arriving in L.A., Seymour was preaching to crowds that numbered anywhere from 300 to 1500 on a given weekend, depend, you know, as as the movement grew. Um, and so, you know, these were these were loud. Uh, they, again, reports of healing, speaking in tongues, shouting, spontaneous preaching by those in the crowd. Um, all of this as sort of evidence of a revival and almost a new Pentecost that was taking place. Um, and so this, this, this thing, this Azusa Street revival isn't necessarily an anomaly. I mean, it happened in a, in a historic time, in a historic place. It lasted roughly about, I don't know, eight to nine years overall. Um, but what's, what's most interesting is the, the, the crowds over as the years went on the crowds that would gather we're talking like people would travel from far and wide people from within the states people from overseas to see what is going on in this revival um you know to, to some to, to some too you know for charles parham and for seymour even um this was almost seen as like the beginning of the end times like some of this was bringing about this the 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 end that was imminent obviously 120 years later it's it, the end has not come so they weren't necessarily correct in that assessment but at the time you have to imagine you've already mentioned all the with all the things going on in the world leading up to things like world war 1 um as as these movements grow like it, it's it's you know it's easy to understand why why the the assumptions were made but um the the people from this movement were so impacted were so influenced that they then went out especially after this had sort of like died down they went out into the world the you know if you want to call them missionaries they go out into i mean you mentioned brazil they're going to south american countries they're going to european countries they're going to african asian Middle Eastern countries—they're—they're—they're they're, they're taking this movement, this—this—this this, uh, this new idea uh, abroad, and that's how it's able to grow so rapidly and so dramatically. Um, so, man, this—this this really feels like a a a daunting topic to cover. I mean, we're talking about the birth of an entire denomination, so to speak. Um, but what's really fascinating to me is like. Be, 
these are the early days. These are the, the, this is the birth of what we now consider a Pentecostal movement. And what's so fascinating is like how even early on there were great differences in belief and practice and opinions. Um, if you read the, the Wikipedia entry, there's like towards the bottom of the page, there's like this, this section of birth of Pentecostal movement. Um, and so it talks about how, um, how this Azusa Street Revival spun off to form the Apostolic Faith Church, the Spanish AFM, Italian Pentecostal Mission um, in, in the southeast of our country. So think of like, um, like North Carolina, South Carolina, like down in that area. Uh, this was like a particularly prolific area where this movement grew. Um, it, it was an era, an area that was more um, predominantly poor, predominantly even immigrant, um, and so that's I don't know why, but they 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 mentioned that these um, you know people in those you know if you if you were poor or and or an immigrant like you were looking for something to be rooted in, and so these traditions and these these movements were something to to hold on to, and so. Um, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Cause like, I'm, I'm looking at this other list of like the, the church of God in Christ, Pentecostal holiness church. Um, the, I mean, eventually the assemblies of God. Um, but what I also find really interesting is like in 1919, uh, we see the, the differences between what we call finished work Pentecostal denominations and oneness Pentecostal denominations. I don't know if you've ever looked into oneness Pentecostalism, Lucas, but essentially oneness Pentecostals, um, they're a non-Trinitarian movement within, within Pentecostalism. They, um, uh, basically like they state that there's one God singular and divine spirit with no distinction of purpose uh, of persons, um, but who manifests himself uh, in many ways, including father, son, and spirit. So like, yeah. Man, it's so just, if you, if you remember from some previous, some previous Harris episodes we've done, they're just modalists. There's, there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> well, right. And that's, and that's, what's, doing doing history doing good history looking back the down the tunnel of time like we do see these like um these movements these ideas like they're not new they're not they're not some sort of like like i'm trying to think of the word it's it's not a new thing but it's a, a modification or or a clarification it's a taking it to maybe one next step um such that like you like you alluded to it's not like speaking in tongues was a new thing um, but what 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 was more new for the time was the the fact that speaking in tongues was this what we maybe want to call initial evidence, this this first indicator of something. Um, it's 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 the thing that that as as Lucas said, like it it shows that this person has been baptized in the Spirit that they, um, you know. So this this movement affirms three works of grace: new birth, entire sanctification, and then baptism with the Holy Ghost. Um, and so that that initial evidence is like, hey, you've you've gone through this transformation. It is real. It is true, and then continue to grow in holiness. Um, but I don't know. Like I don't. I don't I, think these these revivals and these movements. Like it, it's interesting because these were real people in a real time and place with with real. I mean, they had real jobs and had families. Uh, so to see to see the the religious interest the um 
you know, obviously 500 million people are now uh, heirs to what was started here. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. There's so much that can be said. I'm curious what what some of your further thoughts are on this topic. Like as we branch out from Azusa Street, yeah. what do we what do we get? Where where are we? How do we get to where we are today? Right, right. So I think what's what's helpful to me. What I like to do is when I, I love when a, a, a church or a an organization of some kind or a denomination takes the time to put together a nice little like summary bullet point statement of what they believe because um, it's a great place to start to start not not you know it's not everything but it's a great place to start and so I so we've mentioned a couple times the assemblies of God they are one of the you know many uh, Pentecostal denominations that exist today um, they didn't I didn't realize this but they didn't they didn't like formally uh, begin, you know, sort of as we know them today as an organization until like 1989 or something. Um, I don't know sort of what what groups came together or, you know, like I, I don't know really anything about their history. But as a formal organized denomination, the Assemblies of God today is the largest Pentecostal denomination. Um, that doesn't mean most Pentecostals are Assemblies of God or that most would even necessarily agree with, you know, I don't know any of that. But as far as denominations go, they are global and they are the largest um, Pentecostal denomination. So to me, that just kind of indicates that as an outsider, as someone who's who's uninformed, like, again, not the whole story, but a good place to start, knowing that they're this big global denomination. And they do have, uh, uh, you know, we, we think about we think about denominations or churches, associations that submit to a specific confession or a creed. They do have what they call 16 fundamental truths that they affirm and that you need to affirm in order to be a member, to you know, to be in alignment with what the Assemblies of God specifically um, teaches. So I'm not going to go through all of these because there's 16 of them. Um, but they within those 16, they do have four that they highlight as... Um, I think they call them core beliefs, um, and I'll, I'll I'll read those real quick or summarize some of them. Um, one is that man's only hope of redemption is through the blood of Christ. Um, the second is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The third is is divine healing, and the fourth is the second coming of of Christ. So to to dive a little bit deeper, so blood of Christ is the only hope of redemption. You like they're right about that. We, we, we all agree on that. Um, what's important to me is the way that this is worded about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and keeping in mind that these are, th- this is one of the four most important out of 16 fundamental truths that you must affirm to be part of the assemblies of God. It, I think at least in my, that's what I think it said. You know, maybe I'm, in, I'm mistaken on that. If somebody is AOG wants to correct me, like, please do, but um, my understanding from from what's written, from what what you know what comes out in these truths is that these these are this is the statement of faith for the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. And number seven is about baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it says this: baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate and subsequent experience following conversion. Spirit baptism brings empowerment to live an overcoming Christian life and to be an effective witness. So. A distinctive Pentecostal belief being that 
baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate, identifiable thing. We're not talking about water baptism. We're not talking about conversion or regeneration or a profession of faith, right? This is, it's not another way of speaking about those things. Um, it is its own specific, identifiable, distinct thing. And then in, in conjunction with, this is where it gets really sticky for me, in conjunction with the next point, the next point says, the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. So you are baptized, if you're a Christian, you are bat- a, a second, a separate thing. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that is witnessed with this physical sign of speaking in tongues. We'll pause it there. And then an- another one is um, that number 12, one of these core beliefs, divine healing is an integral part of the gospel. Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement and is the privilege of all believers. And then a small thing in the second coming of Christ, they mention the rapture, which is interesting um, for, you know, for us in our history for other reasons. But what I want to focus on is this idea of, um, I don't even really, I don't even really want to spend too much time on divine healing. Um, it It is, it, it it's a, my, my, particular, you know, theological antenna go up when I when I hear somebody saying that divine healing is an integral part of the gospel. This is in our core beliefs that you need to affirm that statement, right? But setting aside divine healing, the thing for me, and, and this is really what it, it, in my limited exposure to and understanding of Pentecostalism um, as an outsider, this is really what, if, if we're going to try and, and categorize and systematize a little bit, Pentecostalism as a movement really boils down, a movement within the church really boils down to this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit. That it's this separate, identifiable thing subsequent to um, water baptism, conversion, however you want to frame it, and that it is witnessed to by this this sign of speaking in other tongues. Um, And specifically, that those two beliefs are essential beliefs for a Pentecostal Christian. Like, it's kind of like saying, you know, oh, I'm a Roman Catholic, but I don't believe uh, that the Pope is the head of the church. Like, you're just not a Roman Catholic. Like, that's, those things go hand in hand. Those are just, that's a distinctive of the Roman Catholic tradition, right? And this is a, a theological and practical distinctive of Pentecostalism, this this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And for me, I have this is this is really why I have this. I think I've mentioned it on air. I know that it's it's been rolling around in my head for years and years since Moody. Um, and I I if you know a lot of times people talk about sort of like three branches or three three. Uh, not denominations, but three traditions, three overarching categories of Christian. You'd want to talk about Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. And then within Protestantism over the last 500 years, we've got all kinds of developments and, and other groups that come out of, of Protestantism that are um, that, that separate out, you know, because uh, we don't want to baptize infants. And that's obviously a very big <laughs> Uh, like practical issue. So, so we separate, we create two different groups, you know, we over here do baptize infants or we have bishops or whatever it is and we don't and, or we're congregation, whatever it is. Right. Um, obviously Protestantism is a very 
broad category today in terms of the things that go into it. But tr- like typically, um, traditionally, Pentecostalism is is a Protestant is a subcategory of that bigger umbrella term of Protestantism. But I I think that there is, you know, I I guess for the sake of of since this is, you know, being recorded and going on the internet, I'll, I'll say it as strong as possible. I think there is sufficient theological grounds to warrant this claim. Pentecostalism is a, a separate and distinct, and, you know, if we want to call it a fourth branch of Christianity. And where that comes from is not just, oh, well, they speak in tongues, and I think that's kind of weird. That feels very different from me, so I'm going to put them over there. No, I'm speaking, like, theologically. I think that the the affirmation of and the commitment to and the the like essential commitment to this doctrine of spirit baptism and it's not the tongues part but it's just that spirit baptism which is by definition associated uh, evidenced by tongues um, is so theologically distinct and so theologically different than the normative teachings and beliefs and practices of other Christian traditions and other Christian traditions within Protestantism that I think I actually am and want to say that Protest- Pentecostalism is its own branch of Christianity. And when you consider the fact that, like, how many there are, what's really interesting for future, you know, I'm thinking about, like, our generation like this isn't new, but but thinking as you know, a late millennial um, in terms of where we are in in our generation, go you know people in our generation, Gen, Gen Z, and and these people like the future generations in terms of missions, in terms of ecumenical dialogue, in terms of uh, cooperation in ministry between churches locally, in terms of theology, in terms of of you know. People are going to continue to write systematic theology. They're going to continue to to have, you know, theological education, all this kind of stuff. Um, if you reframe Pentecostalism as a fourth branch, it's the second largest branch of Christianity in the world behind Roman Catholics. Because, like, in, in, if in the sort of three-way thing of doing it, you've got your... Um, uh, you've got your Catholics, your Orthodox, and your Protestants. Um, but... If you put Pentecostals as their own thing, and there are, in fact, 500 million, that's more than the Orthodox. So it's all that to say, it's a really big deal. It doesn't matter if you're Pentecostal or not. You don't get to, you, you don't get to uh, not interact with them, right? Like, like you read a lot of, of theology books, and you're going to get, you're going to get, you know, citations from Orthodox theologians and saints from the Orthodox tradition and Catholic theologians and Protestant, you know, uh, Lutheran or Reformed thinkers or or whatever, um, and you know some of this has to do with just the the relative, relatively less sort of academic pursuits that that Pentecostals have historically taken. Although people like Amos Young um, at Fuller, also I think he's Lutheran, but I think he, he he I know he does a lot of work with Pentecostal and charismatic uh, like theology is. Um, uh, Veli Mati Karkinen, I think, also at Fuller. Um, like, there are exceptions, especially today. Um, 
but like you don't you don't get moving forward i don't think we get to do theology or do missions or do ecumenism without pentecostals because there's too <laughs> there's too many of them <laughs> you don't get to you you don't get to ignore 500 million christians right and I, and 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 i do think that they are distinct enough in their doctrine and therefore their practice that um, it warrants that thinking of them as, as a really separate, distinct, identifiable branch. And that does not mean, you know, the, the danger I see is that's an excuse to exclude them. Like, oh, well, you know, orthodoxy. We don't need to really, like, deal with orthodoxy because it's, it's you know, it's over there. There's not a lot around me. You know, you know it's like Russia, you know, whatever, like... It's it's over there, and I don't really know any Orthodox people, and it's 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 a different branch. It, it's so different than me that it's just over there. I don't need to deal with them, and especially not so much now, but especially historically, I think Protestants tend to do that with Catholics and vice versa. Um, and I don't I don't want to have this this four branch sort of taxonomy as a way to exclude the other branches from whatever branch I'm in, where I only need to worry about Protestants or I only need to worry about Pentecostals because that's where I'm at. Um, I just think it does better justice to what's really going on because they're not just charismatic Protestants. There are charismatic Protestants in every denomination within Protestantism. But we're talking about Pentecostalism, which is more than just a greater emphasis on miraculous gifts of the Spirit than, you know, the church I go to or whatever. That's charismatic. But Pentecostalism has a very specific theological identity based on this foundational commitment to a doctrine that sets it apart as a movement from every other Christian movement in terms of like organized, you know, Christian movements. And so that those are my thoughts on Pentecostalism. Um, I, I don't I. I I just find it so fascinating, and yet I, I I know so little about it, so I can speak very <laughs> confidently and completely just be talking out of my butt, maybe. So I hope we have some Pentecostals who hear this or who are listeners who who reach out and and you know offer some some insight. Uh, it, you know, hope please correction for anything that's that's just straight up wrong, but also just just uh, guidance and insight in if if this is your tradition and because it's not mine, and you know I, I've I've never been involved in it. Um, in any level. So for me, it's I'm very much an outsider learning about it and still kind of at that beginning stages. But this is this is this is what I've come to see the more I've learned about it, particularly with this centering on this spirit baptism thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't, there's not much more I feel like I can say just being not as well versed. I mean, I've mentioned before, I, I, I've been involved in assemblies of God churches. So I've like firsthand seen some of this stuff, you know, at conventions and conferences and, and Bible camps and such, like where we'd have these nights where like the entire focus was getting everybody baptized in the spirit, having everybody speaking in tongues if they had not yet had that gift given. So like I that's it's only I, I don't know. Sorry, even that I, is I don't want to Yeah, I don't want to interrupt, but I do have that brings up a question that I think is relevant. Like so correct me if I'm wrong, like the specific church and churches that you were a part of were sort of less expressive. Yeah, so like the it, church it, I went to was denominationally assemblies of God, but not necessarily uh-huh. in m- many practices. Like I think, gotcha. to, in order to be a pastor, in order to be ordained, in order to be a part of the the denomination, they had to believe and affirm those sixteen tenets or whatever you called them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but like they didn't, I almost never did I hear tongues and even talking gotcha. about tongues from the pulpit. But when we would right. go to the camps that were AG, right, right, right. when we would go to the other places, that was far more in that realm than my particular church. Yeah. So, so my question that comes from that is like within the context of being at a youth camp, like, like not, not, you know, Sunday to Sunday, week in, week out over years, but, right. but going to, you know, cause I, I know like the youth camps that I went to with, you know, with my youth groups and stuff, they were very much like, they weren't necessarily like, denominational but like they were very much within the box like the 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 bigger box that my church culture and context and theology and and teaching was was a part of so it'd be like you know we'd be going to camp and and you know the sermons didn't sound weird to me if that makes sense um but so i'm curious like you say like like these you know ag not picking on them but just factually these ag youth camps kind of have like it was common to have, you know, I'm just kind of rephrasing what you just said, common to have like kind of a night where like kind of like for those of us in a more broadly evangelical experience of youth group, like the, you know, the 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 last night service is usually very emotional and we're, yep. we're tying together everything and trying to get you to, um, I don't want to say get you to, but trying to, <laughs> trying to have, there's not a way to say it that's not, that doesn't make it sound malicious. I, I don't think it's all malicious. Sometimes it probably no, is, but know. like. To, to to foster, you know, over the bringing together just this real gospel proclamation for the kids who have not yet experienced that conversion to to be brought, you know, to the altar call, whatever. But like in a more AG context, maybe like in addition to or besides that is, you know, we want everybody to be baptized in the spirit. Was that so is that the language they'd use? And is that ever was that like taught and explained in like some of these terms that like a Charles Parham or like a, the, um, the, those 16 points that the assemblies have got where it's like, what, like, or is it kind of assumed that the kids that are there, you know, like it it would be more or less assumed that the kids at our camps were at least aware maybe of what, like, you know, give your life to Christ language, ask Jesus in your heart. Like, or is is it kind of assumed that along with that, you have sort of this general awareness of what, uh, what being, baptized in the spirit is or is it more like they they want you to they want you to have this experience and 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 they kind of like tell you what it is or is it more just kind of like worshipful music and 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 like a time where just they just kind of expect the spirit to move among the kids or whatever yeah you know what i mean like does that does that question even make sense it does and but the answer is very complex because it would it would differ from year to year it would also differ from my perspective meaning like when i was a student there you know i'm there as a student i just want to go there and have fun and like being in any of the services you're like oh can this be over i want to go back outside and play gaga or whatever so but like the way that this camp worked is it might come up periodically throughout the week but the final night was always like the night that was like the night like you said the culmination of like everything that's been said up to this point we want people to be saved uh, we want people to speak in tongues. There were years where it was pushed harder than other years. There were years where, like, we would not leave until everyone was speaking in tongues. Like, I want to hear you speaking in tongues. So, like, you know, the band is playing. It's all very emotional. Um, everyone's sleep deprived and wants to leave. But, like, the the, the, pe- the speaker on stage is, you know, speaking so passionately and wanting people to, to, to do these things. Um, but then later, 
I would go to this camp as a leader. So years later, once I was out of youth group, but was volunteering, helping with, you know, small groups and such, like as a leader in the morning, we were required to attend like a, a, a morning meeting with the, the leaders of the camp, but like sort of before slash during breakfast. And there were a couple of years where like literally like the speaker would get up and talk about like, you know, this is what I want to see tonight. This is what I want to see for like the, the theme of the week. And it I'm not saying it was malicious. I don't think anyone was trying to be evil in this. But the way they talked about it, like we want to see at least 200 kids speaking in tongues. We want to like we want to do anything we can to get your students, you know, baptized in the spirit. So if you have questions on how to do that, you know, come talk to me. We can talk about how your you know, your students can be baptized. Um, so I think like more to try to answer your question is like, it depends. Part of it was also like how much I was just aware of. It wasn't like most of these messages were not doctrinally rich. Most of the, most of the sermons or messages given throughout the week were very generic and bland, you know, lots of jokes sprinkled in lots of like, um, I don't know what I would almost call more motivational speaking than preaching. And it, again, it differed. It would be different depending on who it was and what year. Um, but it wasn't like they were getting up there and being like, well, you know, as a, as an assemblies of God, you know, movement, like these are the things we believe you have to do these things. It was more, I think for most people that assumed like we're within this tradition, this is the assumed norm. And so like, because church camp is sort of where kids come and learn about God for the first time, like this is where we can try to win people to Christ sort of mindset. Um, but that's, that's my experience. That's even my limited experience. Cause like I said, it didn't, it wasn't like youth group was like that. It wasn't Sunday morning. It wasn't like that. This was exclusively like two or three times a year, either for a week or a weekend that I would get exposure to this sort of thing. Yeah. And that makes sense. And like, like putting aside all the, the flaws <laughs> with the way that people tend to do youth camp, whether you're evangelical or uh, Pentecostal or I would imagine Catholic and anything else too, like putting aside the the criticisms we could come up with with based on our experience with youth camp, generally speaking, um, that does just sound very much like what I would expect a leaders meeting at a youth camp to sound like uh, or a conference or whatever um, in a Pentecostal context, right? Like that's just like... I'm sure that conversation would sound the same at the camps I went to with the with, that the leaders had and with the speaker, just without specific mention of tongues or something. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it just kind of sounds like uh, a little bit of a separate, just distinct identity. Then it kind of goes to what I was saying, where um, it's it's a it's an it's a it's a distinct identity. You know, and there's a reason it has a name. There's a reason it has an ism that we call it, regardless of if my fourth branch theory is compelling or not, like there's a reason it's, it, it is a distinct expression of Christianity. And to be clear, not Pentecostal, never been Pentecostal, not a Pentecostal podcast, you know, um, not, you know, I have, I have uh, disagreements and critiques on Pentecostal theology, on the, this idea of it, of, of a spirit baptism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not interested in, and I know that you're not interested in this episode is not meant to uh, denigrate or bash Pentecostals. It's, it's just like, we are outsiders. And obviously the reason we are still outsiders is we have, we aren't compelled by 
the doctrinal specific and and uh, practical um, beliefs and practices the claims being made by it so that that's just we have reasons that we're not that and and so we're trying to um, we're trying to and hopefully it, it, it didn't come across this way we're, we're not trying to be disrespectful we're trying to be charitably uh, different right like we are not them um, I'm not saying they're not Christians I'm not saying they're crazy I'm not saying they're weird they're just they're different and I think that they are different for that theological reason but um, yeah I don't know Super interesting. Like I said, it's just a really interesting topic. Um, so much more to be said uh, that we don't know the answers to because we aren't in that movement. So do you have any like final words before we move to, to praying out? No, I, I mean, okay, I, well, yes, but it's nothing super substantial. Like, yes, I, I do hope that what has been said here has come across as, as charitable, as in good faith, because um, certainly do not want to disparage um an entire movement. Um, I will say though, however, just in closing, like I think there are still problems in certain branches of this movement, just like I think there are problems in any movement. Um, so there's still like good reason to think about these things, to talk about these things, to uh, theologically wrestle with some of the um, more extreme. I mean, because even Benny Hinn, for example, or other prosperity preachers, like, would fall within the charismatic Pentecostalism movement. And I think that there's great reason to be concerned about some of those teachings. So it's like, yes, there, 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 there's the, the fact stance that there are probably some really good, you know, solid theologically orthodox believers but also some that can veer pretty i mean like i mentioned those uh those oneness ones that that are functionally modalist so that's obviously a, a problematic teaching so you, you sort of have to like wrestle with the the particular sect or area of this world just like you would with any other so that that's all i wanted to say yeah and it, it really is like any other like you said and it, and because there's 500 million <laughs> people there it's it's a big enough world that you've got a broad range where you have every people coming out of the same place and going to places that are good and to places that are trinitarian heresy like and everything in between so um i agree i agree good episode we I, this one especially i want feedback especially if there are Pente like i said pentecostals who listen but um to to conclude in prayer um i thought somewhat fittingly We'd, we'd pray a prayer to the Holy Spirit, which there's not many of if you like comb through written prayers, which is possibly another topic. Um, o Holy Spirit, beloved of my soul, I adore you. Enlighten me, guide me, strengthen me, console me. Tell me what I should do. Give me your orders. I promise to submit myself to all that you desire of me and to accept all that you permit to happen to me. Let me only know your will. Amen. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Doxology Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to... I'm trying to think of a different way to say what I say every week. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to any other episode. Thank you for listening to any snippet of any episode. We really appreciate all the support uh, and love that we get from you guys. Uh, we do want to connect with you. We are on social media at doxology podcast we are uh, on the email at doxology podcast at gmail.com 
feedback, questions, insights, corrections, all of the above, none of the above. We just want to hear from you. And uh, we will be back in the nearish future. Well, the near future. It is the near future, but it might feel, I don't know if you have a rough week. It might feel like a long time, but <laughs> hope you have a great week. Hope you have a great uh, uh, preparation season for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we'll see you next time.